Well, it was in uh, 1977 that a young boy by the name of Aaron Kushner passed away because of a rare and fatal genetic disease. His passing at the age of 14 left his father in a great deal of personal pain. His dad, Harold Kushner, was a Jewish rabbi well-trained in the Hebrew Scriptures. And the passing of his son at such a, a time sent him on a quest to try to answer the question, where was God when he was needed most? Certainly, Harold Kushner understood the Hebrew teaching, the Hebrew Scriptures on the omnipotence of God, but his personal experience seemed to push back on what those scriptures stated. As he wrestled with his personal circumstances, he questioned how God could be both all-loving and all-powerful at the same time. As he wrestled through that question, he eventually landed on this idea that God cannot be both all-loving, all-benevolent, and all-powerful at the same time. Instead, his power must have limits. That, of course, led in 1981 to a book with which probably many of you are familiar. It was the book, When Bad Things Happen, to good people. Published in 1981, it went on to sell over 4 million copies, was on uh, the New York Times bestseller list for many, many months, became a very popular book and uh, catapulted Harold Kushner to this status of kind of being this spiritual advisor for many who were going through similar challenges. Well, many years later, NPR did a an interview with Kushner and asked him what was behind his, his abandonment of the doctrine of divine omnipotence. And he, and he said this in the interview, he said that if it was God's plan, if God was somehow in control of his son's death, then he said, it's a bad bargain. He said, point blank, I don't want to have to deal with a God like that. He went on to say this in the interview. He said, the theological conclusion that I came to is that God could have been all-powerful at the very beginning, but he chose to designate two areas of life off-limits to his power. He would not arbitrarily interfere with the laws of nature, and secondly, God would not take away our freedom to choose between good and evil, end quote. That was Kushner's conclusion based not upon a a detailed study of the Word of God, but upon his own circumstances and what appealed to him in his moment of sorrow. What Kushner does is show us what a God made in man's image looks like impotent, but affirming, a nice guy, someone who's always going to be there for you, but one who's not in control and has nothing to do with those 
hard parts of life. Well, Kushner shows us what human rationality does when it is, when it is detached from the Word of God. In fact, the very name of Kushner's book betrays his, his bias when bad things happen to good people. He himself rejected the teaching of Psalm 14, verses 1 to 3, repeated in, in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, where God, through the biblical writers, both the psalmist and Paul, say that there is none righteous, there is no one, there is no one who does good, there is not even one. And so Kushner, in his understanding of the universe, comes up with this God who is friendly but not in control. He downgrades God's power but also God's holiness. So how are we to understand God's power? And when we look to the Scriptures, what does the Scripture teach us about omnipotence? Let's understand the need to set aside all of our experience, all of our intuition about what God should be like if, if we had our druthers, and instead look to His Word to see how He Himself defines His power. Well, to do that, we first must define the term omnipotence and look at what omnipotence really means. Well, the word omnipotence is derived from two Latin terms. You know the one, omni. Omni means all, and then potentia means power. And so put together, all power, omni, potentia, all powerful. And so we can define the omnipotence of God this way. The omnipotence of God refers to his ability to accomplish anything that he pleases without diminishing any of his power. His omnipotence refers to his ability to accomplish anything he pleases without diminishing any of his power. In a word, we could define it this way. What God desires to do, he does. He faces no self-imposed limitations, and he faces no external limitations. Because his power is infinite, he never gets tired, he never uses up his power, or he never exhausts it when he exercises it. So if you think of a battery, we're so familiar with the battery, right? Especially if you drive an electric car in cold weather. The battery runs low. There's no way that you can use that energy, that power, in the battery without depleting it and requiring a recharge. Impossible. But with God, that never happens. God acts. He expresses his power in mighty works or in subtle works. And no matter what, the level of his battery is never changed. It is always completely full. He has infinite power. One 17th century theologian by the name of James Usher helpfully provided five additional characteristics of God's omnipotence. First of all, he is able to perform whatever he desires, whatever is not contrary to his will. It's number one. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. But when we talk about 
biblical omnipotence, God's power, God is able to perform whatever he desires, whatever is not contrary to his will. Number two, God can do all things without exertion, with ease. There are not some things that are more difficult for God and some things that are less. If you have infinite power, you don't face that problem that we face as human beings. Number three, God can do all things either through secondary means, secondary causes, or he can do things apart from means. So he can meet the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus and speak to him directly there through the Lord Jesus Christ, or he can send preachers who will carry the message. God can choose to use means or work immediately without means. All of that is included in his omnipotence. Number four, there is nothing and no one that can resist such power. Nothing and no one can resist so that in some way God becomes frustrated, in some way that he has to retreat, in some way that he has to recoup and retry it once again. And then number five, all other creatures that have power to one degree or another, never have it in and of themselves, but all of their power, whatever degree it is, is always derived and is dependent upon God, and God can take it away in a split second. Very simply, we can then define God's omnipotence, what it is with these words. God's omnipotence says John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew, God's omnipotence describes his ability to do anything consistent with his nature. Now, having said that, we also have to look at what omnipotence does not mean. Look at some of the challenges that have been offered by men like Kushner to the doctrine of divine omnipotence. Let's look at what God's omnipotence does not mean. Some have contended, and these, these, these challenges come from more of the philosophical branch, but some have contended that if God is truly omnipotent, he must be able to do everything imaginable, including that which is absurd, contradictory, immoral, and self-defeating. And so the idea there is that God must be able to make a square triangle. He must be able to speak that which is true and false at the same time. He must be able to make a married bachelor. And he must be able to create a rock that's so large that he cannot lift it. Otherwise, he's not omnipotent. But that is a very strong rejection of the biblical teaching, and it is a very absurd challenge to the doctrine of divine omnipotence. Omnipotence is not a perfection if it is used against itself. Instead, God's omnipotence does not obligate God to do everything imaginable, nor does it obligate him to do that which is contrary to his own nature, his own essence. 
So to be omnipotent does not mean that he therefore must have the power to commit immorality, to snuff himself out of existence, and things like that that philosophers have bantered around in their discussions. No, that is not what omnipotence means. God exercises infinite power in absolute freedom, but always in perfect harmony with who he is. And so when you look at the other perfections of God that we have been studying, his power functions in complete harmony. It's indistinguishable in that sense. So that when we talk about God's holiness, we can talk about it being an omnipotent holiness. When we talk about his goodness, it is a goodness that is omnipotent. And we can reverse that and say God's omnipotence is good and his omnipotence is holy. And so if there's ever a time if his omnipotence would be evil, he, he would cease to be the perfect God that he is. It's impossible and that is not a weakness. Augustine said it this way, God is omnipotent and yet he cannot die. He cannot lie and he cannot deny himself. How is he omnipotent then? He is omnipotent for the very reason that he cannot do these things. For if he could die, he would not be omnipotent. So when we describe or explain this perfection of God's omnipotence, we must always remember it is perfect omnipotence. An omnipotence that can never be used for evil, that can never be used as some kind of anti-God effort. It is perfect omnipotence. Another challenge that has come against the doctrine of omnipotence or another misunderstanding of it is that God's power must be somehow limited by causes outside of himself and beyond control. So, for example, going back to the early church, that same Augustine for some years of his early life was part of a, of a heretical movement called Manichaeism. And Manichaeism believed that, 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 that there was this epic struggle between good and evil, and God is mixed up in that, and, and, and the end is just not clear. Kind of a yin-yang idea mixed with Christianity. That was Manichaeism, and Augustine believed it for many years until his conversion. This idea of, of God's power being somewhat offset, at least to a degree, by powers outside of himself that lead him frustrated and engaged in this battle where the end is not necessarily clear. Some charismatics, and you may be more familiar with this, but some charismatics would teach today that, that God's power is limited by the forces of darkness and that God needs the, the engagement of angels and human beings even in order to win the day. You may remember those novels by Frank Peretti, This Present Darkness, or something along those lines, where this idea was, was espoused back in the 90s and caught a lot of traction. And Christians began thinking that God was limited in his power. We needed to help him so that the powers of light would prevail. 
Arminians believe that God's power also has been limited. And that power has been limited the moment that God created human beings. That the moment he created human beings with uh, responsibility and free will, then by necessity, he had to limit himself and the expression and extent of his power. Or, as some would even say, that even the law of free will, existing as some abstract law, has power over God in that it limits God. And so you could look at it this way, that God has control over the universe, but there is some kind of law over God that reigns him in, that limits the power that he can express. And so, to a large degree, Arminianism expresses this idea that God either by necessity or by choice, has limited his own power. And of course, as we already learned from Harold Kushner, there are those who believe that God's power is limited by, by the presence of evil in this world. It's, it's called theodicy. The word theodicy refers to the effort to explain how God can exist in a world that is filled with evil and its consequences. God cannot be both all-loving and all-powerful at the same time, or evil would not exist. But evil does exist. So one of those two assertions is untrue. And as Kushner concluded, God must be all-loving but cannot be all-powerful. Well, all these and, and other challenges to God's omnipotence arise from the human effort to try to explain who God is and explain His power in a way that is not fully submissive to the Word of God. So what does the Word of God teach about the omnipotence of God? Let's now look. Let's look at the biblical testimony to this doctrine. And once again, man, we could spend all evening reading through texts all the way from the earliest chapters of Genesis, straight through in every book of the Bible, all the way to the book of Revelation. The testimony to God's unlimited, infinite power is extensive. Let me categorize that witness into three categories. First of all, there are those texts which just generally describe God as being without limit in his power. For example, Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. You might be wondering, why is it there that last phrase, he does not show partiality or take a bribe? Well, that testifies to the truly powerful state that God has. He is not in any way limited by things outside of himself. He is not in any way influenced by bribes or by the face of men. He does not take a bribe. He does not show partiality. Why? Because he is great. He is mighty. He is the awesome God. Second Chronicles 20 verse 6 Jehoshaphat prays this prayer, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? 
And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms and the nations? Power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 32 Here's another prayer, this one by Nehemiah, and he says this, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness. In Job 23 verse 13, Job states about Yahweh, he says, But he is unique, and who can turn him? And what his soul desires That he does. Job 42 verse 2. Job, after being confronted by Yahweh in the the whirlwind, he repents. And he says this in 42 verse 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That is omnipotence. Psalm 62 verse 11. Once God has spoken... Twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Psalm 115 verse 3, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Isaiah 14 verse 27, For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for His stretched out hand, who can turn it back? Of course, those are rhetorical questions, and the answer that is so apparent there is no one. No one can frustrate the plan of God, and no one can resist or turn back his outstretched arm. Later on in Isaiah, which is filled with so many of these references to the the omnipotence of God, we read this in chapter 40, verse 26. Lift up your eyes. On high and see who has created the stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Even in that age, they understood the the stars and our sun to be the most powerful elements of all creation. I mean, you think of even our sun, which is not by any stretch the largest star, and the power that is generated by that sun, completely, utterly uncontrollable by us. And yet, as we read here in Isaiah, God controls all of them, all of the stars. He has brought them into existence. He holds them and sustains them. He has called them all by name. He leads them forth. He is the God of power. Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Nahum 1 verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. Moving to the New Testament, Matthew 19 verse 26, regarding the salvation of the rich man. Remember, Jesus 
had said, it is so difficult for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples said, well, then how can any man be saved? And Jesus responded by saying, with people this is impossible, even for the rich man himself, but with God all things are possible. The same idea is repeated with respect to the incarnation of the Son of God regarding the virgin conception of the Messiah, something utterly impossible. The angel says to Mary, for nothing will be impossible with God. Romans 1 verse 20, here Paul writes of the, the, the manifest nature of this omnipotence when he says this, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. You see, the reality of it is everyone believes that God is omnipotent. The question is, whether you wonderfully submit to that reality or whether you spend your life resisting. Revelation 1 verse 8, here Jesus says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who was and is and who is to come, the Almighty. Over and over again, from beginning to end, the Scriptures put no limitation on the power that God has, the only limitations you can find are those that would suggest that God's power could somehow, because He's omnipotent, used for evil, used for imperfection, used to undermine the very existence of God Himself. Not at all. God is omnipotent in that He is perfect and His power is always used in harmony with that perfection. There's another category of witness that comes from the Scriptures, and that is the witness to God's infinite power from the names and the titles that that He uses for Himself. And there are many. In fact, so many of these names, just by by virtue of, of, of their words, what they mean, testify to God's omnipotence. The problem is, is that we have become so accustomed to these names that we don't realize what we are referring to when we use them. Just the name Lord, whether Adonai or Kurios, Adonai in the Old Testament, Kurios in the New, testifies to power and authority. You have the term Lord God, in the Nazbi, or Yahweh Elohim, or Adonai Yahweh, Lord God, or the term El Shaddai, El Shaddai, God Almighty, or just Almighty, the Hebrew name Shaddai, or the name Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord Sabaoth, as we sang from Martin Luther's him, a mighty fortress, is our, God, is our God, Lord Sabaoth, His name. It refers to the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord over all powers. God Most High, El Elyon, the Mighty One of Jacob or Israel. El Gibor, Mighty God. 
And then the New Testament, words like the King, the only sovereign, King of kings and Lord of lords. These titles over and over again testify so clearly, so plainly to the omnipotence of God that we even take them for granted. They should make us tremble when we come to these terms, realizing that our very lips are pronouncing a reference to the one who possesses infinite power. There's a third category of witness that we could look to from the Scriptures, and it is the descriptions of God's works. Just let these works themselves testify to the omnipotence of God. For example, a few of these, and Scripture is filled with narratives of these works that demonstrate God's unlimited power. First of all, He created the universe, Jeremiah 10, 12. In contrast to the, to the gods of the nations, Jeremiah says, it is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom. Sustaining the universe, keeping this mass, this expanse functioning. And we read this of Christ himself. He is the radiance, Hebrews 1 verse 3 says. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. And he, that is Jesus, holds all things by the word of his power. He holds it all together from the biggest, from, from the biggest galaxies to the smallest molecules, he holds it together, not by exhaustion as the one who, like the, 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 the man trying to keep all the plates spinning and feed his family and comes home weak and tired at night. No, he holds it all together by the word of his power. He orchestrates or orchestrated the worldwide flood Psalm 29 verse 10 says, The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord is king forever. As God brings judgment on that antediluvial world, He sat as king as all the floodwaters came in and destroyed everyone except Noah and his family. God sat as king, delivering Israel from slavery and in Egypt is a demonstration of God's power. Daniel 9.15, Daniel in that prayer says, And now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for himself. Resurrecting the dead. Bringing a dead corpse to life. 1 Corinthians 6.14 says, Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power, making dead men alive. His power is demonstrated also in the judgment of the wicked. Isaiah 13 verse 6 says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. And saving sinners is also a remarkable work of God, a demonstration of His power, and that's so beautifully expressed in Paul's very well-known words in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where he says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the 
power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. That is our God, infinite in power. Well, when we think of all of this then, we're, we're brought to the place where we have to ask the question then, what does the omnipotence of God demand of us? How ought we to respond to this testimony, clear testimony from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation? What does it require of us? How must we respond? This is not a doctrine that we can merely consider intellectually and think, hmm, that is a nice doctrine. No, it has an impact on our lives. And and here are several ways that this doctrine comes home to us. Number one, God's power warns the sinner of his fate. Let me just say this. If you have not been saved, if you have not already come to know the power of the gospel for everyone who believes, then let me warn you with the authority of Scripture, with this testimony of the omnipotence of God, let me warn you, sinner, you will not prevail. You will not prevail. You may spend this part of your life dismissing God's power. You may enjoy some days where you can ignore it, but you know it's there. As Romans 1.20 said, it has been clear. It is clear. His eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen. You know it's there. And it is my duty, sinner, to, to, to remind you that you will not prevail. Isaiah one twenty four says, Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares, Ah, I will be relieved of my adversaries. And avenge myself on my foes. Or in Luke 12, verse 5, Jesus says this, But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, to fear him. And even to quote from the Lord Jesus as he appeared on the road to Damascus to the rebel Saul, and he said to Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Here's the reality. You can kick for a while, but you will not exhaust God's power. You will not diminish that battery 1%, and he will prevail. He will prevail. Stephen Charnock, in his work, Existence and Attributes of God, has a wonderful section on this addressed to sinners. Let me quote one paragraph where he says this, how foolish is every sinner. Can we poor worms strut it out against infinite power? Oh, that every obstinate sinner would think of this and consider his immeasurable or unmeasurable boldness in thinking himself able to grapple with omnipotence. What force can any have to resist the presence of him before whom rocks melt and the heavens at length shall be shriveled up as a parchment by the last fire? 
As the light of God's face is too dazzling to be beheld by us, so the arm of His power is too mighty to be opposed by us. So first of all, God's omnipotence warns the sinner, you will not prevail. But secondly, the omnipotence of God also teaches us that God's power makes the gospel believable. It makes the gospel believable. Now, the gospel is a promise. That's what the gospel is. It's a promise. It's good news. And the gospel is the promise that you as a sinner who is one of God's adversaries, who has lived his life in opposition, in ways that are unpleasing and defaming and blasphemous before the Lord God. Here's the promise of the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the promise. That's the gospel. Believe. But here's the issue. Anyone can make a promise. We all make promises all the time and our wives will tell us how often we don't fulfill them. In fact, I would say quite confidently that ours, even if we're mature in Christ, we make far more promises than we keep. It's our state. Anyone can utter a promise, but the issue is, and this is where the power comes in, can you bring the promise to pass? So that sinner who is at enmity with God and who does deserve from all his deeds from who he is in his nature, all that he has done, that sinner who should pay the penalty for his sin. Here's the question. How can the promise be held out that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved? You will inherit eternal life. The answer to that is the power of God. He can fulfill this promise And his power, of course, is that outstretched arm. And that outstretched arm for the one who believes is the arm that has accomplished all that he did on the cross through Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul says, as we've already quoted in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'll stand before kings. I'll stand before peasants, before slaves, before philosophers, You name it. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation. For all those sinners, all those at enmity with God, the gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes. He says this same the same idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, repeated many times there, the idea in that those verses, chapter 1 verse 18 to, to 1 verse 31 especially, not many wise in this world have been saved, not many, not many noble, not many mighty. But here's the reality of it, 1 Corinthians 1.18. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, to those sinners who persist in their ways, but to us who are being saved, to us who have believed the promise. The word of the cross is the power of God. God's omnipotence makes the gospel believable. And you might say, well, pastor, you don't know the nature of my bondage. 
you might say, you don't know what a sinner I am. You might say, you don't know the nature of my enslavement. This gospel, it's impossible. It cannot save me. And to that I respond, remember that God can not only save you, but it will not decrease his power one iota. He is omnipotent. And so we sing that song of, of Charles Wesley, oh, for a thousandth thousand tongues to sing. We sing that stanza that says, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Spurgeon said this, he said, every conversion is a display of omnipotence. You see, every sinner at enmity with God is utterly unable, even in his own strength, to break his ways, to change his nature. It takes the omnipotence of God to do that, and he does. And this is what makes the gospel believable, the omnipotence of God. And it led Thomas Watson to say this, The strong God can conquer thy strong corruption, though sin be too hard for thee, yet not for him. And so I address you again, sinner, that you may think it's impossible. You, you may think that you're too far gone, you're too hardened, the, the snares are too heavy and deep and thick. The chain's too strong. And God looks at that and says, not for me. With me, everything is possible. Number three, God's power compels us to reverent worship. You see, and this is what the, the biblical writers saw. They themselves had been had been seized by the saving power of God, and they also saw this power of God in the world around this, in the world around them, and in all the redemptive acts of God. And so, when they thought of omnipotence, it was not something to try and qualify or explain away or say, "Well, God must be limited here to protect human freedom here." Not at all. They reveled in the omnipotence of God. They, they saw that, that what, what it means that, that to, to, to realize that we don't worship an impotent God, a God of limitations. Instead, we worship a God of infinite power. Psalm 21 verse 13, the psalmist says, Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. The psalmist says we're going to praise your omnipotence. It's going to be the object of our, our adoration. It is not something for the redeemed to fear. It is not something for us to qualify, to shrink back from, but to exalt. To say our God reigns in unlimited power. In one of the great prayers of the Apostle Paul, we, we have this, this statement that he makes in Ephesians 3, 20 to 21, this this benediction, he says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond what that, that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him, 
be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That as Paul thought of the power operating in the lives of those Ephesian saints, it draws him to worship and adoration. There's that scene that the book of Revelation describes in Revelation 4 verse 11 where God is worshipped again for His perfections. And here we read in verse 11, Worthy are you, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Oh, this is to move us to praise. Our God reigns. Again, quoting from Stephen Charnock, he says this, Wisdom and power are the ground of the respect that we give to men. They, being both infinite in God, are the foundation of a solemn honor to be returned to him by his creatures. If a man make a curious engine, we honor him for his skill. If another vanquish a vigorous enemy, we admire him for his strength. And shall not the efficacy of God's power in creation, government or providence, redemption, inflame us with a sense of the honor of his name and perfections. What reverence and adoration doth this mighty power joined with an infinite wisdom in God demand at our hands. And that's why we sing songs like we did this morning, or this evening, Rejoice, the Lord is King. Or the song by By Isaac Watts, I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day. The moon shines full at God's command and all the stars obey. If you are wanting to revive, invigorate your praise life, Study the omnipotence of God. Number four, God's power comforts us in our weakness. Contrary to the direction that Kushner took, thinking that he would be comforted in an impotent God, instead we find that it is the very power of God that brings us our greatest comfort in our time of need. You see, the omnipotence of God allows us to answer that question, whom shall I fear? Or even, what shall I fear? And we can answer it with a resounding, no one. In fact, it is often said that that command that you see so often in the Gospels is the command, do not fear. And that command comes out of the fact that for those who are in Christ, for those who have been redeemed, It's the omnipotence of God that becomes our protection. Psalm 27 verse 1 says this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Psalm 46 verses 1 to 3, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at swelling pride, we will not fear. And though you may enter the valley of the shadow of death, 
you can still say, because of God's omnipotence, I will fear no evil. For thy rod and thy staff, those instruments of power, they don't make me afraid. They comfort me. You see, men, you will not find any long-term solace in trying to deny the power of God in the midst of your hard circumstances. Rather, it comes from knowing these circumstances, every last one of them, are in His hands, and He has power over it all, and that power is working with infinite wisdom and infinite benevolence to His children to turn it all toward good. You see, God's power can take a crooked stick and make a straight line. One theologian called the Shakespeare of the Divines named Jeremy Taylor said it well when he said, it is impossible for that man to despair who remembers that his helper is omnipotent. As we go from here and reflect upon these things, let us remember our God reigns And for those of you who have been redeemed, who have believed in the power of of the gospel, this power is your comfort. But if you have not believed in the power of the gospel, then the power of God is that reminder that He will prevail. But while it is still called today, or while it is still called tonight, I call upon you to embrace the power of God that is made in the promise of the gospel. Flee to Him and you will find your soul's greatest need. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the promises of your word. And even more, we're grateful for the power that stands behind those promises. We're grateful for the power that is behind the promise that everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, will inherit eternal life. That the one who believes in his heart that you raise Jesus Christ from the dead and confesses with his mouth that Jesus is Lord, that that one will be saved. The promise that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Those promises are meaningful because of the omnipotence that stands behind them. And we thank you for that. And we thank you for the promise that stands behind, or the power that stands behind the promise that says that for all those in Christ Jesus, all things are working together for good. And it's your power that makes that true. Father, give us a greater appreciation for that power, an appreciation that causes us, even every time that we are able to mention your name, that it causes us a reminder of just who you are, infinite in might, and that you have come to us and have made us your own. We are grateful and will be eternally for that, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.